Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm so grateful that you could join me. And I have to tell you, this is one of my favorite interviews I have done in a really long time. Partially because I am a super history nerd and I love learning about any kind of history, but also because I think this is an incredibly important conversation to have, especially right now. So let me tell you where the idea for today's episode came from. I am aware, like maybe most of you who are women in America, that August marks the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. That was the amendment that gave women the right to vote in America. Only it didn't totally. So when I was a little girl, I was taught that there were the suffragettes like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and they fought so hard and long and earned the right for every woman to vote. And what I understand now is that the 19th Amendment actually had some very specific wording that didn't necessarily guarantee any woman the right to vote and certainly alienated any woman who wasn't white. And so my conversation today is with Professor Martha Jones. Her work is something that I came across as I was studying this for myself. Between the articles that she's written and her incredible books, she has so much wisdom to share. Professor Jones is the Society of Black Alumni Presidential Professor and a professor of history at the John Hopkins University. She is a legal and cultural historian whose work examines how black Americans have shaped the history of American democracy. And today we are talking about everything from genealogy to our ancestors to women supporting other women or women absolutely tearing other women down and how this applies today and why all of this is so important for you to learn for one specific reason. You need to vote. I will not tell you who to vote for, but it matters that your voice is heard. And so that is my conversation with Professor Jones, and I hope that you get as much out of this time as I did. I'm Rachel Hollis, and I've built a multi-million dollar media company with a high school diploma and the free information I found on the internet. In the 15 years that I've been building and scaling my company, I have become deeply passionate about helping other entrepreneurs to do the same. So each week, I'll be sharing tangible and tactical advice and inspiring interviews with the same intention. These are the tools to change your life and your business. This is the Rise Podcast. I would like to believe that all sorts of different people listen to this podcast, but if I had to guess, I have predominantly white women listening to this podcast, and I understand that. And I understand that if you are a white woman and you came through the education system in America, your perspective of the 19th Amendment is probably very different than if you are a black woman and you grew up in the same country. And so I have been thinking about this where whatever day this is, and it's August 21st. So since the beginning of August, I have been asking myself, how can I talk about the 19th Amendment? It is the 100th anniversary of it being ratified. That is a huge deal. 
But that's also not the whole story. So in wanting to speak about it, this perspective is not my story to tell. And so I wanted to, I started to seek out books or articles that I could find to arm myself with information. And in doing that, I came across your work. I found your article in Nat Geo. And that was sort of what started this conversation. And then very kindly, you agreed to jump on this quickly with me and have. So if we could begin, just that's my kind of coming into this conversation. If we could begin by, will you tell us just your your story. Love to hear about women doing incredible things and your biography is unreal. So will you just, as much as you want to share, tell us your story about how did you end up in the line of work that you're in? I don't get here by a straight path. That's really important to say. And over time, that's become my philosophy, right? That the way to measure success, well, there are lots of ways to measure success, but one of them is through the sense that you do work that has a purpose. And so um, that really has been the guiding principle for me all along. I like to tell my students I started as a psychology major. I I tell them that as a way to say, you know, you can do things in college that don't turn out to be the things you do um, in life. And so um, I'm a psychology major and my roommate is also a psychology major. And she goes on to be today a very distinguished clinician and hospital administrator. She did the whole nine. But by the time we finished college, I knew that wasn't going to be my path. And I took a year off to work in a law firm thinking maybe I'd want to go to law school. I got very lucky because um, in those years in the 1980s, this is going back quite a ways, um, New York City and the CUNY University system was opening a new law school that was especially designed to train people who wanted to, um, as our motto goes, law in the service of human needs. And this really spoke to me. This led me to think I could have a professional life that didn't demand that I abandon my values or my ethics or my purpose. And so I trained at CUNY and I was a public interest lawyer for almost a decade in New York City. My last major work was representing women and their families with HIV and AIDS in the beginning of that epidemic. I found life as a litigator tough. Um, I found it tough to fight with people all day. And I took a sabbatical. And a little bit like you, if I understand correctly, I had a love of history, but it was it was sort of amateurish. And I had never really studied history very seriously as a student. Um, but I had the chance to work with some historians and I just got hooked. I loved the treasure hunt. I loved the deep dive. I loved for me, uh, blending my interest in family history with academic questions that were animating uh, historians at the same time. Do you mean your own family history? Yeah. So um, when I'm a lawyer, I uh, spend my weekends and my vacations doing genealogy and, and discovering my family tree and interviewing the elders in my family. And I find them incredibly interesting. I'm not sure if anybody else will, but um, <laughs> it, it teaches me why history matters to people, right? Because it's through history that we we figure out who we are. And so all of that sort of came together. And um, here I am a lot of years later, still finding ways to do that. And this book that I've written, Vanguard, begins with some family history. Finally, I had the courage to sort of put that family history, a little bit of it, on the page. It's so in my family, the my aunts of a big family, big Southern family on both sides, and they are very 
into genealogy. I mean, I remember being a little girl, kind of before there was Ancestry.com or before it came, they were very into knowing sort of, you know, when did we come here from Ireland? When did those things happen? And so that was always a part of my life. But as a little girl, I kind of didn't, you know, I didn't take it very seriously. And it wasn't until the last probably five years that I really started to dig back into that. And I don't know if it has felt similar for you, but for me, I want to know why I am the way that I am. You know, so for instance, my grandparents, my, my father's parents were migrant farm workers. And you know the story of sort of Grapes of Wrath or the Dust Bowl, that is my family's history. And I think of that as like the strength, right? Like what mm-hmm. that took for my grandma to have six children and pick cotton and that was her story. And I find so much pride and strength in that. And that then led me to, okay, well, what's more? So was it similar for you and that there was some kind of catalyst that made you begin to wonder or was it kind of always part of your life to talk about family history? Well, in some ways, you know, I had been raised with the guidance of a grandmother who was very interested in history and teaching me that I was, in a sense, a product of history. She was the daughter of an enslaved woman. So in her family past was the history of you know, that scourge and that degradation. It was the story of freedom. It was the story of how people built lives out of um, that experience. And she wanted me to know, I think in some ways, how hard, what people had sacrificed in order for me to live the life that I was living in the 20th century. But it was also true in my family. I don't know about yours, but, you know, even with that, we only told like, five stories. It was the same five stories all the time, you know, and they were good stories, but they were only five of them. So when I get interested in family history, I'm like, you know what, there's got to be more here. And, and that's become part of my work. And, you know, with that, you find things sure that you didn't know. Um, Not all of them are things that absolutely warm your heart. There are some really hard truths there, but I believe that maybe in the way that you're saying, I think even knowing those hard truths are a kind of the fabric of my own tenacity, right? And my own toughness when I'm having a good day at least. So I've found strength even as I have discovered stories that no one had ever told me and that are difficult to hear. Can I ask, because I know two of my best friends are Black women, and I know that one of the things that has come about in the last five years maybe that has been really powerful is not just the ancestry, but the ability to do like 23andMe or sort of understand where they come from, where their ancestors come from, because, and you please educate me if I'm, I'm speaking out of turn, but for as poor as my family was going back generations and generations, there's still recorded history right? Like we can trace that back. But for many of my friends who are black, they don't have that because that history was lost when they were taken, when they were enslaved. So am I explaining that correctly? Or could you explain to listeners who might not understand that? And then was it, is that something that you've done to sort of trace all the way back where you come from? It's such a, it's such an important part of why I think a lot of Black Americans come to genealogy and even to genetic testing because we don't have available to us the same kind of paper trails. In my family, the trail 
um, as best I can figure it out, only goes back to the beginning of the 19th century. That's not very long. And that certainly does not account for captivity in Africa, the Middle Passage, the first time someone is sold on an auction block. I don't know those stories. And I think what you're telling me is, yeah, and sometimes people look to genetics to answer those stories. I confess I'm I'm a little skeptical about the the genetic testing mm-hmm. and the limitations of that. I think increasingly, um, you know, as the genetic data is now being sold and totally. monetized, I, I'm sort of glad I never did one of those. Tests. <laughs> but I think it's yeah. apparent to anybody who meets me that I am come from a you know so-called mixed background. But mostly, I ascribe that to another tough part of our history, which is the history of sexual violence and that the women in my family and the earliest women that I can trace are women who bore children, not by consent, not by will, but by force. And that leads to some complicated genetics, I guess. Yeah, certainly. But it also leads to really complicated family histories, right? Where does family end um, and something else begin even as you might be genetically related to someone, is that family? That's a really interesting question for me. And people have really different answers about that, right? What you claim, who you claim, who you don't claim. I'm really interested in that. And what can I ask, what is your perspective on is that family, is that not? Well, you're tapping into some research and some writing that I'm doing now for a next book, which is a family history. And what I'm discovering is that Each generation answers that question very differently. And there were times in my family history where people regarded the so-called white people in the family tree as family. And then there are later generations that really close the door on that and don't want to talk about that in part because it includes the history of sexual violence. And then look at me, right? I'm somebody who looks at the census returns and, um, and all kinds of records to rediscover that. And I want to talk about it, even if I don't have the perfect language, I don't have the perfect framing yet. I recognize that I think it's one of the under-told stories in the African-American past is the ways in which ourselves, our lives, our families were shaped in part out of sexual violence. When somebody like Tarana Burke brings us a movement like Me Too, I hear something that reverberates backwards, if you will, into our deep past. So this is something I'm trying to think about and write about right now. But it's not unique to African-American families in the sense that many of our families, as we were saying earlier, tell stories that cover up some things and reveal others. And we get into the DNA business and sometimes people find out things that no one had ever told them about who they who they are so to speak absolutely and that can be that can be unsettling that can be shattering you mm-hmm. know um, it can also be exciting um, sure. but it but it but it definitely is um, I think unsettling to realize that you've been telling a story about yourself that wasn't quite the whole story a hundred percent 
I'm curious, and I think you can answer this as a historian or just as a woman, um, when you find the pieces of your family history, of your ancestry, all of us have, like you said, stories that are beautiful and inspiring and give us strength. And then there are stories that are painful or could cause shame. And so I'm curious, do you sort of hold both of those together? Do you focus on the pieces that give you strength? Do you? How do you reconcile both pieces of that. I mean, the thing that makes me ask that question is my family's Southern on both sides, which means that we go back, we're on the wrong side of the war across the board. That is my family history. Now, is there, are there strength in our story? Is there beauty? The immigrant story and coming here and those pieces that I find pride in? Absolutely. But it's not the whole truth if I don't also own the parts of that that are awful and wrong and under it, it's like if you can't look at that then how in the world are you supposed to do better how do you hold both of those things or do you try and focus on the ones that empower you you know for a long time i i was personally stumped by that um and when i would discover something difficult i'm the kind of person who would put it away or you know, close the file on my hard drive and think about it for a long time. But if you remember, there's so many things to remember about Barack Obama's early presidency. But one of the things that happened when President Obama uh, was elected was that strangers went and did his family history. Right. So there's a thing that can happen. Right. You didn't ask the question. He didn't ask the question. But people went ahead and investigated his family history. And among his mother's forebears were small slaveholders. And, you know, people held that up to Barack Obama as if that would shake him or that would be an indictment or that would somehow compromise who he was. Okay. But what Obama said is that's American history, right? That's American history. We are Americans, you know, at least I'm an American, right? And, and that's our history. And our history includes the possibility that I am descended from enslaved people and I am descended from slaveholders. And honestly, for me, his steadiness in the face of that revelation, which was not his revelation um, at all, it was somebody else, you know, kind of sensationalizing his family, but his calmness and his centeredness in that really helped me to appreciate that, you know, in some ways history is history. Um, And it's ours, I think I'm butchering a quote from Jill Lepore, but, you know, the world is ours to make. And, you know, and I feel the same way. Like I'm here, I'm an American with all that complexity, with all that seeming contradiction, with a lot of pain and a lot of ugliness, along with a lot of beauty and joy. I'm here and I'm not going anywhere and I'm not going to dress that history up to make you comfortable or fit in to some narrative that you have because we're here to make the future, the present and the future. And I guess that's my response to you, right? Even as you are someone, as, and these are your words, not mine, right? On the wrong side of something historically. The, the question is, what do we do with that now? What do we do with that for the future? That's our charge as human beings, but we can do that looking with a 
clear eye at where we come from. Yes. Well, that makes me think of, I don't know if when you're writing, you do this, I kind of start with questions that I have, and then I will ponder them or research them for a long time before I will ever speak about them publicly. So I'm going to ask a question that I've been wondering, putting it out there that I don't have any answers, but it is something that I've been thinking, which is, what has the perception been? What has the relationship been historically between white women and black women? Because I think in history, what we have done and how we've interacted with people will set the tone for everything that comes after unless you actively work to change that narrative. And so I have wondered, it, which is awesome because this is our conversation today, we're specifically talking about voting rights, but I have wondered how that manifests into the relationships that we see today or the anger that we see today, or often there are words that are ascribed to black women that are not ascribed to white women when they are, in my opinion, trying to stand up for themselves, trying to speak openly and honestly, trying to share their frustration or their anger or their pain, and then sort of get opposition from other women who are not women like them. And I just wondered how much of that is historical, is something that has manifested again and again. I don't know if I'm explaining myself well, but I was wondering if all the way back to the time of pre-Civil War and sort of the role that white women played in turning a blind eye, pretending they didn't see what was happening, or being complicit in what was happening, and how much then that manifests in, in, in relationships we have today. Did that make any sense at all? Well, there's a lot there. Um, yeah. But, I, but I'm going to try because I think it's a really important question. I think one of the ways that historians explain how the long life of racism is that racism ex exists in structures but it also exists in what historians call um, common sense. It exists in habit. It exists in attitudes. And I think in our own lives, we can appreciate that while it can be difficult to see the structures, right, that promote and encourage and the structures that racism is embedded in, we do have a sense of the ways in which the common sense, the habit is something that we inherit and that is passed along. And historian Ariella Gross has written about this in a book called What Blood Won't Tell. And what she looks at is judges and courts. And she explains how even judges, you know, who are bound by the rule of law, who have access to science and the best thinking, rely on common sense a great deal of the time when they approach questions of race and racism and racial identity. And it's striking the way in which we make sense of the world and we use ideas that are passed along to us in very informal ways. So I think that's one piece of the puzzle. But you asked me about my own research, and I'll tell you something that as I was trying to write a history of women in the vote, Black women in the vote, I got very distracted, or at least I thought it was initially, when the women I was reading about kept talking about a place called the ladies' car. So here we are in the 19th century, public transportation is segregated by custom, later by law, and there are on streetcars and certainly on railroads, literal cars set aside for ladies. And these are places where there's no smoking and where um, there's no cursing and there are very few men unless they're escorting women. And women pay a premium to sit in these cars. And Black women, when they travel, look to sit in these 
these cars also because they don't want to sit in the smoker car where the billows are filling the car with literal smoke, where men are drinking and carousing. There, there's a lot going on on a railroad in the 19th century. <laughs> but the women I write about again and again talk about the ladies' car. Why? Because even when they buy a ticket, even when they are, you know, you know, correctly um, comporting themselves as middle-class women, um, they are again and again harassed, denigrated, and oftentimes physically ejected from the ladies' car. And almost any Black woman activist from the 1850s almost till the 1950s, will tell a story about a confrontation on a railroad, on a streetcar, on a steamship. So my, my question is like, what's going on here? Because I'm interested in the vote, but it goes to your point. Part of what they're telling us is about this discrimination, right? But part of what they're telling us is that white women watch. Mm-hmm. White women watch. I could only find one example of an instance when a black woman, when she's harassed by a conductor, um, one example in which someone speaks up for her. Mm. And the person just speaks, just shouts, doesn't actually intervene. And that has never left me. You know, how do we see each other when we recognize that we have witnessed, right, that white women um, have witnessed denigration, the discrimination, and these things, the violence that is meted out at Black women when they refuse to give up their seats. Men come, put their hands on these women, drag them, right, brutalize them, um, rather than let them ride in the ladies' car. And people watch, including the white women in the ladies' car. They watch, and I think we're maybe only coming to a reckoning, right, with what it has meant, right, for some women to be brutalized and other women to watch. That might even be a metaphor um, that is useful to us in the 21st century. Thank you for that story, because I love the perspective. I feel like women, like if you go back as far as you can go, let's go back to sort of tribal culture. It felt like, at least my understanding of that history throughout different cultures would be that you're identified with the other women. You identified or bonded based on gender, not on race, not on the color of your skin. And at some point, things started to shift and change. Like you're telling that story and I knew what you were going to say before you said it. I knew, of course I knew. And So what it makes me wonder is at what point did it stop being about women sticking together? You said this, you watched a man put his hands on another woman. You watched someone be physically violent, or if you want to fast forward to the world that we're living in right now, you watched someone get shot when police broke into her apartment in the middle of the night. Like you are watching this violence happen to other women. At what point in our history did it become about you sort of associated and identified based on your skin color instead of the fact that you as a woman were also oppressed. You know, if we're talking about the 19th Amendment, you were standing outside, you didn't have the right to vote. And so you are being oppressed in certain ways, but you are oppressing others. I know that you're not the the oracle and that you don't have all the answers, but when did this shift start to happen that that became what was acceptable? So there's a 
there are a lot of things intersecting we need in order to think about that question. The first is, what is the history of racism? And, you know, historian Ibram Kendi has most recently in his book, Stamp from the Beginning, sort of helped us appreciate, right, the long evolution and the emergence over many, many centuries of racism. So that's one story we'd have to tell. And that, and racism doesn't begin in the 19th century. It is centuries old by the time I get to the story of the lady's car. So Mm -hmm. that's one piece. The other piece comes from an old professor of mine who would say, you know, for most of human history, the world was a profoundly inegalitarian place, right? Hierarchy, difference was the order of the day. And um, in some sense, uninterrogated, at least in Europe before the 18th century. It's the Enlightenment that gives Europeans critical vantage point on all the inequality that has characterized their societies and others for a very long time. So it's no coincidence that we get the rise of anti-slavery thought. We get the rise of early feminism in the 18th century because among European thinkers, at least, this is the moment of the Enlightenment and a critical perspective on all of human history and its profound inequalities. I guess the last thing to say is, at least for me, I don't think, for better or for worse, right? I don't think women stand outside of history. You know, our conversation about race and racism in, you know, the modern United States is just one example of the ways in which women stand in many positions, right? Um, That is part of what we have to grapple with is that there are ideals to womanhood. There are aspirations that we bring to our shared womanhood. Sometimes we, we get to them, right? There are moments in U.S. history when black and white women, I read about black and white women in 1838 in Philadelphia, abolitionists who link arms, who lecture together, who walk the streets together, who are vilified and attacked together. We have those stories too, but that is a struggle uh, for American women um, that is not gone, obviously. I think we have a, uh, you know, one of the reasons I'm excited about the anniversary year of the 19th Amendment because is that I think it's just become a, a focal point for these kinds of conversations about who are we in relation to one another as women. Our past is troubled. Our past is rocky. But who do we want to be now that we understand how we got here? Those are the kinds of questions and conversations I think that the anniversary should be generating. I don't care about the floats people know. I don't care about the laser light shows. Uh, but I very much care about the conversations that the new kinds of conversations we can have because we're marking this uh, centennial of the 19th Amendment. As an author, you are telling the stories of so many women who have never had their story told. I've thought about this a lot over the last few years. And I think as I look to my future and I step back into fiction or whatever I decide to do, you know how it is with a book deal, you sort of finish your book deals and what comes next. I think a lot about female warriors. And I, in some cases, I mean the people who were actually physically battling many, many, many years ago. And then I think about modern day warriors or in the instance, the women that you write about. And the thing that I 
that is so important for listeners to understand, for the next generation of women and, and young girls to understand, is that we have those stories in our history. In every culture across all societies, there are stories of women who stood up in opposition, who led armies into battle, Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad. And then at the end, of, I don't know if you saw the movie Harriet, but at the end of Harriet, I was so upset with myself because she, you know, she leads the soldiers into battle. And I was like, what is this? Like, I never knew this piece of her history. That's great. And so I think what I wonder about is that those stories exist, but have not been told. And that if you don't know that that's your history, then you don't know that you are strong. Mm -hmm. If you don't know that that's your history, then you don't know that, oh, this is what it looks like when we stand together and we fight in the streets and we get attacked together and we don't. If you don't know that history, if the only stories that are being told are the history you already understand, then you feel even more unsure of how to rise up against the injustices in the world. So how much of what you're creating now is about that, like, these stories exist and nobody is telling these women's stories. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sort of goes back to where we started um, with the family history, right? That on the one hand, some of us do know the stories, right? But not mm-hmm. enough of us. Right. Um, and so how do we take those stories and project them and make them part of a bigger set of shared knowledge and shared histories, right? That's definitely my work is to take the work really of three generations of Black women's historians and to try and project it out to to many more folks who didn't know those stories. But the other way I think the family history is useful is that I think there's no question for me that knowing, you know, my grandmother's struggles, her mother's struggles, her mother's mother's struggles, that's a big part of who I am or how I imagine who I am, right? And so I think we need imagination, right? And part of where imagination comes from is from the stories we know, from the examples that we tell. And I don't know if you ever were the genealogy is running through everything we talk about today. It's great. Um, but, you know, I don't know if you've ever watched Professor uh, Henry, Henry Louis Gates's program, Finding Your Roots. Uh, but no, he, but I'm going to write that down too. And so Gates does a program where he does the genealogy of, of notable people, oftentimes celebrities. Oh, right. Um, and then he... I've seen... Um, who do you think you are? Have you seen that show? Okay. Yes. Okay. And here's the thing. So um, he did an episode with Chris Rock, the comedian, that I have never forgotten because Rock mm. explained his life. He was the son of a, a janitor, a maintenance man, and he had expected he would do the same in his life and comedy sort of gave him another path. But Gates, when he does Chris Rock's history, discovers that Gates is Grand, great, 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 great grandfather, great, great grandfather had been a political leader in the 19th century during the Reconstruction era. Mm. And you can see on Chris Rock's face how powerful everything changes. And he says to Gates something like, You know, who would I have been if I had known that? Right? So, who would we be if we knew? And I have never forgotten that because it was an example of, in an instant, right, how the power of the past, our own past, but our collective past, right, can transform our imaginations and our sense of who we can be, who we should be, who we must be. I'm someone who's lucky because my grandmother made sure I knew a good bit of that history and that I carried it with me and that I was accountable to that. 
And I hope that the stories that I write serve just as I hope, you know, the Black women leaders in our midst, right, who are living, breathing on our televisions, on our screens, are inspiring and informing and shaping the imaginations of girls and of young women. You know, today, young women, young Black women, young Indian American women in this country um, have a new way to imagine who they might be. And it it lives, it breathes. It's named Kamala Harris. It's just right. one example, but it is the kind of example I think that you're talking about. And, and that really does work in people's lives. I think it's not just window dressing. I think it really does change people's lives. I mean, I think for listeners, I mean, I hope that between the two of us, we've encouraged listeners <laughs> to, to do that family research. And I want to encourage too, it's, it literally starts with Go speak, you you said this at the beginning, go speak to the elders in your family. Go have a conversation with your grandparents. Go, you know, start start with your parents and then work your way back. I was really lucky in that that was always sort of part of, of my childhood growing up. So I knew which aunties to call and they would tell me the stories and help me trace it back. But you talked a lot about imagination and I feel like that is a beautiful segue for why I wanted to be able to have um, listeners meet you and, and hear your wisdom is because if I didn't explain this well at the beginning, August marks 100 years since the 19th Amendment was ratified, um, meaning it was ac- accepted. And tell me if I'm wrong, but it was accepted throughout the country. And what I learned as a little girl was the 19th Amendment meant that women had the right to vote. Mm. So it started long before that, you know, fighting for this right and getting states to accept it. But finally, 36th state, Tennessee, it gets ratified. And I had always grew up understanding that that was when women had the right to vote. And what I now can understand is that not all women, mm-hmm. you know, in the form of voter suppression that black men had encountered since the 15th Amendment, and we see this manifest today. So for listeners who may not be as familiar with that story, will you share it with us? There's a long and hard fight for the 19th Amendment. And increasingly across that fight, it is one that is waged not exclusively, but primarily by white women in the United States. The prospect of extending the vote to African-American women is expected to, in a sense, mark the death of the 19th Amendment. So what's going on? Um, The 19th Amendment, the way it's written, it prohibits the states from using sex as a voting criteria. It doesn't guarantee the vote to any women. That hit me when I read it in your article. It didn't give everybody, it didn't say we waved a wand and now all the women get to come and vote. All that amendment said was you couldn't be, a state could not discriminate against you based on your gender. Didn't guarantee anything. It just said you can't discriminate for this reason. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, it's, it's really important because that means that there are women who can't vote even after 1920. You might be too young. You might not be a citizen. You might not be a resident. You might not have the mental competency, right? All of those things are still permitted by the Constitution as barriers to the vote. But to your point, I think the story that I tell is one about African-American women who everybody understands um, will still be subjected to state laws that are already keeping Black men from voting. 
These are things like poll taxes. You've got to pay a dollar or two long before the election if you want to vote in a November. Literacy tests at the discretion. Someone hands you a text and says, read this. It could be as simple or as difficult. Can I encourage listeners to, because I did this when I was doing my research, I Googled what literacy tests were. They're crazy. They're honestly look mm-hmm. it up. It's wild. And I, I also I want uh, uh, you will better explain this than I do. But I want to make sure and not miss this point. What we're saying right now, maybe if you're in 2020, and you don't understand the relevance of this. So if you say there was a poll tax, meaning that you had to pay money in order to vote, or that you had to take a literacy test in order to vote, was voter suppression specifically aimed at people who would not have had the finances or the education in order to do either. So if, and please tell me if I'm wrong, but the 15th Amendment was, was it five years after the Civil War ended that that came in? Sure, 1870. Mm -hmm. And so if we're still struggling with systemic racism in 2020 in massive ways, then you have to understand, listeners, that five years after the Civil War ended, there is no way that everyone was just suddenly okay with equal rights. Just it's not a thing. And so then Mm. things were put into place, which would say, okay, you have to pay money in order to vote, which if you have just left this world where you have been enslaved, you do not have money to pay a poll tax. If you've just left a world where you were enslaved, you don't have the education to read anything. So it's important, sorry, I'm getting fired up, but it's important. I know that our listeners who are black understand this piece, but in case you're listening, you're like, I don't get it. What's it? It was very specific. It was very intentional, aimed at a a group of people who would not have that ability. So from 1870, when the 15th Amendment goes into place, to 1920, now women have this ability, and allegedly black women, now those black women, those women who want to vote, are facing the same systemic (laughs) oppression and voter suppression that the men had been fighting against for a very long time. Is is that, am I correct in that understanding? Absolutely. I, I'll give you one more illustration because I think it's the most graphic one. Southern states by the 1890s have enacted what are called grandfather clauses. What does that mean? It means they don't say, if you're black, you can't vote. They say, if your grandfather didn't vote before 1868, you can't vote. Well, what does that mean? That means, of course, that people who are descended from slaves, four million people, by the way, are barred from the polls because, of course, their grandfathers couldn't vote. Their grandfathers were held as enslaved people. So it's important now, as it was then, to read between the lines, right, and and to appreciate that these laws are written to avoid constitutional problems, right? You can't say race, you can't say no black people, but they are written in a way that are intended to target African American voters, and indeed they do. And it's important to say in 1920, this is not a this is not a secret, right? Today, maybe political folks would sort of 
you know, in back rooms, right, and off the record talk about in racist terms, but not on the record, not on the floor of the of the Congress or the floor of a state legislature when they're in fact enacting something like a voter ID requirement. But in 1920, uh, this was uh, this was an open discussion on the floor of Congress, on the floor of state legislatures. Yes, we can pass a 19th Amendment because we know that black women still won't be able to vote in many, many places. Now, it's important to say that some Black women do vote. Importantly, in states like New York and California and Illinois, Black women will vote even before 1920. But for most Black women, particularly Southern Black women, these kinds of state laws, so this is law, there's nothing illegitimate about it in that sense. These are laws that have kept Black men from the polls, as you say, and now are going to keep Black women from the polls. Black women respond to this. They know what's coming. And so they organize citizenship schools, suffrage schools. They train and teach one another how to overcome these tests. How do you pass a literacy test? How do you pay a poll tax? You can train people and teach people how to do that. And that goes on. Um, But there's also violence and intimidation. And what Black women want in the wake of the 19th Amendment now is federal legislation that will wipe away those state laws. They want an express act of Congress that will override the state laws and open the polls to all women. And they don't get that. Um, They don't get that until 1965, when in the modern civil rights era, um, we have finally the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, I want to mention this too. Uh, We are obviously talking about the history of Black women voting and the 19th Amendment. But If you're listening, I feel like it's important to say, too, this affects people of color across the board. So you mentioned state ID laws, which makes me think of, and I might get my dates wrong here, but I think it's 1924 was the first time that Native American indigenous people were allowed to vote. I want to say it again because I want to make sure that you heard me. 1924. So you are indigenous on this land. You are the first people here in 1924. But even still, there were loopholes. There was voter suppression in that as well. And and still is, by the way, because what states started to do was say, okay, well, you have to have a state ID in order to be able to vote. But if you were born at home on a reservation, you may not have a state ID. So uh, it's just important to understand that this kind of suppression um, happens all over the place. And we started out talking about imagination and what I wanted and what I hope in this idea, all of this information that we've discussed about where you come from and who your family is, is that across the board, people have had to fight so hard for the right to vote for their representation. And as we go into November and as we go into another election that is so important, are you registered to vote, listeners? That is really all of these things leading to this. You talked about this idea of like what you've had to go through and this idea of we stand on the shoulders of giants. For some reason, I want to say it's Isaac Newton, that we stand on the shoulders of giants who fought so hard. I know in, you know, the million people who will listen to this podcast, I know that there are people who are not registered or who are disenfranchised or who think it doesn't matter or think their voice doesn't matter, which is why I wanted them to hear from you because I was so inspired by your work. And I thought, man, if maybe we could just talk about how hard people have had to fight. So you have this ability that maybe that would inspire 
people to use their voice in whatever way they can. And for me, you know, that was my own family history. One of the last things I did when I was finishing this book was finally try and figure out how and when my own grandmother voted for the first time, (laughs) Um, because I thought it was time for me to know that. And I didn't know the answer to that. But once I realized how the women in my life, women that I knew, right, um, that were part of my life that helped raise me when I knew their struggles, I thought, I'm not only going to be registered to vote, which I am, I hope, nobody's purged me from the roles, but I'm going to do my homework this year. So I'm sure I know how to vote because everything is shifting underneath us. And what I did last November is not going to apply. And so I've got to figure out, I had this experience. We voted in Maryland in June in a primary and we did it by mail. It's the first time I had voted by mail. And fortunately, out of just by coincidence, somebody said to me, oh, you know, by the way, don't forget to sign the outside of the envelope. And I said, what? And I looked and sure enough, there was a place, but I tell you, I would have sealed it up, dropped it in the mailbox and not signed. And so talk about vigilance. This year is the year to be vigilant because I almost dropped my meaningless ballot into a mailbox in June because I didn't understand the rules. I didn't understand the mechanics. I was voting in a way I'd never voted before. So I think we're all going to have to be sort of on our game and really into the details and teach other people. Tell people in your church community, tell people in your club, tell people at the gym, tell people on your, you know, your neighborhood Facebook page, whatever it is. People need to really understand the nitty gritty of vote. Where is the mailbox? You know, people live in neighborhoods where the mailboxes have disappeared, apparently, in this country. Where are the mailboxes in November? Right. All of that, we're going to have to, you know, the League of Women Voters and other organizations are certainly going to be there to help us. But we're going to have to really help one another I think, in a way that is unprecedented in this country. You just said something that sparked a memory from something you spoke about earlier, which was talking about those women all those years ago, the black women who were teaching others how to pay the poll tax, how to take the literacy test. And I think there is an instinct, certainly makes me feel angry when you tell me that women had to do that. And I can't even imagine how angry it makes you. And I think that there's something very interesting here about Being a woman, being a person of color, being LGBTQ, being any, basically anything but a white man, (laughs) is that you have to play the game until you can change the rules of the game. And so you talking about, you know, hey, I need to know everything that I, I need to know to sign the envelope. I need to know to tell other people to do that. There are people who will listen to this and say, it doesn't matter. It's the, the system's broken. Yeah, the system is broken. But you can't affect the system if you're not inside of it. And so is there something to this idea of, you know, you know this history better than than I do, obviously. And because uh, you're, I'm new to your work, I haven't read the book yet, but I'm so excited. I'm, I got to go read them all, but I'm excited about the newest one, um, Vanguard, because just the little bit that I've been able to glean is black women were telling these stories, fighting for equality, in politics, that you wouldn't be discriminated because of your gender, that you, all of those things first, they were, they were doing these things first. Those women could have just been like, you know, screw you guys. Like this, that doesn't matter, but they educated themselves. And then they did one of the most powerful things you can do, which is educate others. You're absolutely right. And I think that 
the lesson out of that is yes, you, you, in some sense, some of us have to be in it, right? We've got to be in it, right? In order to steer our fates. And yet the women I write about wouldn't object if, you know, on Tuesday you vote and on Saturday you head to city hall with a, you know, with a placard and you make some noise, right? That I think politics isn't one note. There isn't only one way to affect change. Um, But what they would say is you've got to use every tool in your toolkit, right? And you've got to be nimble, you've got to be creative, and you've got to be persistent. It's a long game. Politics is a long game. It is not a sprint. And it, it really is that marathon. And what I loved about writing Vanguard was looking at women who start, you know, in their 20s as activists. And they're doing one kind of thing. And by the time they're in their 60s, they're doing a whole other set of things. So our lives as citizens, our lives as activists, our lives as political beings are long. Um, and we should enjoy and fight with everything we have at our disposal. But there's no question that for me, the world has changed since 1920. It's not enough. It's not everything. There is more work to do. But Here in 2020, not only is Kamala Harris um, a candidate for vice president, you know, more than 120 black women are running for Congress. It is a record-breaking year. More than 230, I think, women running for Congress this year. In 1920, very few people could have imagined that. We are going somewhere. and, And what else would we do? I'll say the last thing about election day is take your niece, take your goddaughter, take your children, take your grandchildren, whoever you are out there, take your sister, take young people with you, whether it's to the polling place or sitting down at the kitchen table and filling out that ballot, because this is also a year in which we really need to educate and bring on board really young people who can't, yes, I'm somebody who remembers going to, with my mother to vote, you know, and standing in that booth. And I was too small to really even see what she was doing, right? She had to put me down and I stood there and sort of looked up as she did her thing, but I never forgot it. Right. And her message to me was, you know, someday this will be you. This is an important part of what we do. So when you vote, take somebody with you um, and, and, and show them how it's done. Show them how women, one of the important ways that women make a difference and show their power. You know, black women show up even when nobody wants them. <laughs> you know, they're leaving a record. We are here. Right. And we're not going anywhere. And I think that's at a minimum, what we have to say this year, but I actually think this year we have a chance to make a difference. Professor Jones, thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time. You, um, first of all, for for doing it so last minute with me, because I felt like it was important for this podcast to go in August, since we're talking about the 19th Amendment. Thank you for your wisdom, and thank you for being willing to let me ask questions that are I should already know the answers to or say things in ways that is maybe incorrect. I really appreciate the grace in, in having this conversation with me. And I know that listeners are going to be so touched by what you've shared. The newest book is called Vanguard. And I would love if you just talk about that for and then the book that came before it as well, because that's what I'm really excited to read, too. And then tell listeners where they can get them. 
Sure. Wherever you get your books, um, <laughs> I recommend your local independent bookseller. Uh, bookstore.org goes to supporting independent booksellers. But Vanguard looks at 200 years of African-American women's political history, um, asking a question, were Black women suffragists? Um, what did they do as suffragists? And, and how has it mattered? How has it made a difference? So I was starting with people like Stacey Abrams and wanting to tell the history, which is not the history much of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan Anthony, but it is a mighty history of you know, Black women foremothers and sheroes who are there for all of us to know more about and embrace and fold into our imaginations, right, about who we should be. Vanguard is out September 8th, and thanks to everybody who's already pre-ordered. It's been really exciting to get the book out there. The book that before that was called Birthright Citizens, and here I wanted to look at the history of citizenship from the perspective of Black Americans um, even before the Civil War. We oftentimes tell the story of citizenship through the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Forgive me, you all. I'm just going to take you for a, a, a deep dive for half a minute into legal history. But the 14th Amendment constitutionalized the principle of birthright. Born in the United States, you are a citizen of the United States. As simple as that. But before uh, 1868, it was an open field and a lot of questions and a lot of inconsistency and a lot of trouble for Black Americans who oftentimes were treated as and regarded as non-citizens. So I look at the ways in which Black Americans for themselves create this idea of birthright citizenship, um, how they fight for it, how they struggle for it, how they promote it, and then see it finally after uh, many decades struggle become part of the Constitution after the Civil War in 1848. That book is set in the city of Baltimore, which happens to be today my hometown, though it wasn't always true. So I hope you learned something um, about the African-American political past, even before we get to the Civil War and the abolition of slavery. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm honored to have the time with you. And I hope that we can come back and have another conversation because I learning about history is one of my favorite things in the whole world. And I think this is American history. I don't want to speak for everyone who is listening, but I was definitely raised in an education system that taught me white American history. And this is American history. So if, if you are truly someone who believes in this country and what it is capable of and calls yourself an American, you need to be educated about the full history, the full scope. Like we said earlier, it is possible for us to understand the, the parts of our past that make us proud and let us know that we are strong, but we also have to hold the pain and the suffering and the oppression because both of those are our story. So thank you for being our teacher today. Thanks very much for having me. This has been a pleasure. Thanks, Rachel. Guys, I hope that you loved that conversation with Professor Jones as much as I do. I oh, I was like such a nerd. I could have talked to her for hours and hours. And if you are still with me listening to this, then I think that you will agree that this was a really important conversation that we need to have and that more people need to hear. So if you got something out of this, myself and Professor Jones, man, we would so appreciate if you would 
take a screenshot of this episode and post it on your social media. Tag me so that I can see, tag Professor Jones so that she can get all the followers, but tell people about this conversation or do one better and have conversations like this yourself with people in your community. And also make sure you are registered to vote. Please look up in your state when the deadline happens so that you don't miss it. Your voice matters because you matter.